Hello and welcome to the program. My name is Luke Hunt and this is another podcast for The Diplomat. With me today is David Welsh. Uh, David is the country director for the Solidarity Centre in Thailand and Burma. The Solidarity Centre is an international labour rights organisation headquartered in Washington, D.C. David, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Luke. Nice to be here. You've got two countries under your belt, both of which are military-backed governments, uh, more so in the case of Myanmar, obviously. How are the labour right movements in both countries shaping up at the moment? Well, I'd, I'd say they're two very distinct challenges going on in both countries. Start with Thailand. I mean, certainly both for those engaged uh, in the sort of work of international human rights, international labor rights, that broadly speaking, and I think probably among the general populace, that broadly speaking, there's a sense that Thailand isn't necessarily, I'll I'll use a bit of a misnomer, isn't necessarily at the forefront of labor rights violations, that uh, things are relatively cool compared to, say, some of my previous homes like Cambodia or Bangladesh uh, or even Indonesia. But but in reality, certainly at present, um, a number of high-profile cases affecting not just Thai workers but prominent leaders of the Thai trade union community are very much at the forefront of not only civil society's concerns here but increasingly the international diplomatic community and the broader populace. So I'm happy to happy to talk on, on a couple of them. Right. Well, what are the main issues? I uh, understand there are, there's a long, ongoing dust-up, I guess. It's, I don't want to understate it, but with the state railway unions of uh, Thailand. Sure. We're at a critical uh, juncture in that. The, the state railway union of Thailand, it's a case that's uh, nominally referred to as the SRUT, the acronym of the state railway union of Thailand, the SRUT 13. It's 13 because 13 trade unions, union leaders rather, have been... Um, really facing severe legal harassment uh, going back to 2009, so effectively 13 years now, or at actually critical, critical juncture. But um, certainly the Solidarity Center and the wider international trade union community would be involved regardless. Uh, anytime 13 trade unionists are on the verge of being imprisoned, which is the case here, but, but it's particularly important and it represents a hugely symbolic moment in terms of potential assaults on the trade union community and the human rights community, because within those 13, uh, Sawit Kevan, who is effectively the most senior leader of the Thai trade union movement. And so while I'm happy to go into details of the case and where we are, Mm. fundamentally, we're facing a situation in Thailand where at present, the leader of the Thai trade union movement faces multiple years in jail and not multiple years in jail because of corruption charges or because of malfeasance, but uh, multiple years in jail for conducting basic trade union activities. So right. it's a pivotal, pivotal moment. It affects freedom of association in Thailand. It affects the rule of law, and it's garnering enormous attention among the diplomatic community here and, and internationally. So we will see how it unfolds. Yeah, my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is this basically started out over uh, the safety of Thai trains, and they've never pardon the pun, they've never had a great track record. And the, the government seems to have gone after the trade unions really harshly. Why is that? What is their bent? Yeah, I think there, there are a couple of factors. You're right. I mean, basically, this all stems from clear safety violations in the state railway of Thailand, violations that, uh, in terms of the safety conditions on trains, that resulted in deaths. And in reaction to that, state railway unit of Thailand 
did very uh, not much more really than than uh, conduct a public safety campaign by by any measure. And I think that you know the lawyers in the current criminal appeal on that do a great job outlining that. But mm-hmm. but what the Thai government, because obviously there's an element of losing face, there's an element of calling authorities into question. Um, and the irony here, of course, is that liability in terms of the trade safety were were found back in the day. I mean, the, the State Railway of Thailand and others have had to pay out fees and fines for deaths that resulted in terms of poor safety in the trains. And, that, and that's all really that the union was trying to highlight. But there's a there's a restriction on employees that are deemed state employees from conducting strikes. And so the tool that was used by the Thai government at the time was to say that what this was nominally a public safety campaign to raise awareness that uh, Thai unionists were and Thai and drivers who were unionized were being effectively forced to conduct trains, literally conduct trains under faulty safety conditions, um, yeah. resulted in what was what, what the Thai government classified as, as a sort of strike. Um, and so in, in reaction to that, a series of civil suits were launched. And so there was a legal saga that lasted roughly until 2019, so a decade, where up and down the Thai labor court system, up and down the human rights judiciary, Various cases were launched, various cases were won and lost, some in favor of the Thai unionists, some in favor of the government, all based and stemming from this original incident of launching a public safety campaign that was classified as a strike, but only importantly resulting in in civil fines. So the civil fines were very unpleasant for the 13 unionists involved, including Sawit Kivan, rendering them in many cases effectively penniless, that those who weren't terminated had the majority of their salary garnished to pay off these horrendously heavy civil fines, but that was the extent of it. Mm. Enter into 2019, uh, where out of nowhere with no forewarning, as the bulk of these payments and these civil penalties were on the verge of being paid, a body called the National Anti-Corruption Commission, the NACC, which is ostensibly which was ostensibly formed to police conduct of politicians and senior civil servants, Yep. Uh, launched, launched to file the criminal case uh, against these 13, stemming from the same event. So to sort of get the dagger in, uh, and they did so literally within weeks or a month of the statute of limitations for actually doing it. So clearly premeditated and clearly uh, designed by the government, I would say, to sort of get a final thrust in right. after a decade of, of civil harassment. But the criminal uh, and, the, and the provision, the criminal provision which they were charged in with stemmed exactly from the same incident. So this came out of nowhere. I should also say that over the decades, this case featured incredibly prominently on various ILO complaints concerning Thailand, on trade petitions concerning Thailand. So you're sort of damned if you do and damned if you don't. By ignoring it, you know, uh, it would be difficult for the Thai trade union community and the international trade union community to ignore such a basic assault on, on trade union freedoms and rights. But uh, on the other hand, by highlighting the case repeatedly in international arenas, there seems to be a bit of a correlation between further charges being brought. So right. charges were brought. The first criminal trial occurred in October 2020, so a year and a half ago. All 13 were found guilty and sentenced to four years minus a year in jail. And so the international trade union community and the Thai trade union community reacted very quickly to this. Bail was secured, an appeal was launched, and a variety of mechanisms have taken place in the interim, uh, including an amicus curiae brief, so basically a friend of the court brief outlining how this sort of persecution, legal persecution, violates numerous international norms, violates, violates any number of international conventions that the Thai government has signed on to is a basic violation of rule of law, freedom of association, etc. 
There are four international groups that have endorsed that amicus brief. That forms part of the appeal. The legal team that is representing the 13, uh, I would say, is comprised of the top um, litigators in this arena in Thailand. A very sophisticated appeal was filed and with the Court of Appeal here in Thailand. But also, more importantly, there's been a series of diplomatic efforts. I can say that at this point, 13 different embassies uh, are regularly briefed on this situation. They have made representations to the Thai government. This matter has been raised in any number of forums from the U.S. Congress to the U.S. Trade Representative to the Department of State to any number, virtually name your U.S. government body, and they have been briefed on it and equally have made representations raising concerns about possible diplomatic repercussions to this. And, and the diplomatic repercussions are such because of the fact that it would be sort of unheard of and very difficult to contend with a straight face that the, the all, we, we're concerned with the fate of all 13, but frankly, sure. um, the presence of Suik Kevan, I, I think is the reason why uh, this legal ordeal has lasted for well over a decade and why uh, the harassment has been so systematic, uh, mainly that, that, you know, it's one thing mm. to, one thing to threaten to imprison so basically one thing to criminalize trade union activity and threaten to imprison any trade union, uh, certainly when you have 12 of them, that is a significant event. To do so with the leader of the Thai trade union movement is, is quite a different political, uh, right. carries quite a different political onus, let's say. And there's no question that this is a politically motivated trial and a political motivated persecution. But so my, my hopefulness in this is that it, this is started, the genesis of this is clearly political. Um, and so it can end politically as well. Okay, so now well hang, within, hang on a second. Uh, it's well within the government of Thailand's right. uh, ambit okay. to make sure that this case goes away. Now, this goes back, uh, as you've said, 10 years. There was a coup in 2014 that uh, installed General Prayut into power. Has there been a noticeable change in attitude since the coup and the hardening and basically... The, the crackdowns that came afterwards and based with basically a military regime, has that changed attitudes to trade unions uh, since the coup in 2014? Well, it hasn't lessened, let's put it that way. And certainly the, the changing this from a decade of civil harassment, which was painful, but not uh, as um, harmful perhaps as, as facing criminal prosecution and the prospect of years in jail. Right. Um, that occurred in two, that's that that process started in 2019. And so the free what, what's been emphasized in diplomatic briefings and, and to the international media, to the national media mm -hmm. um, is this cuts this cuts across three fundamental issues that that not just the Thai trade union community should be worried about, but but Thailand writ large should be worried about, namely public safety. And anytime you question public safety, even demonstrably weak public safety, there will be repercussions for doing so. The second is the rule of law, that, that these cases and these convictions don't really make sense. The appeal that's been submitted on behalf of these 13 clearly outlines, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say yeah. quite bluntly, like sort of er er errors in fact in law repeatedly repeatedly over over uh, a decade. And so basically, the, the clearly the message was delivered that these people had to be convicted uh, criminally or found uh, liable civilly, whatever it takes. And then last, and sort of most importantly, from my perspective, I'm biased, obviously, but um, is freedom of association. And the message that's being delivered is that look, look what we can do with impunity to the leader of the Thai labor movement. So you can imagine what we can do to someone in the fishery sector or someone in the garment sector or someone in agriculture or someone in the manufacturing sector who would like to exercise what is on paper their legal right 
to form a union and lead a union. Uh, look what we do to the leader of the overall movement. What do you think mm-hmm. we can do to the rank and file leaders? So this is absolutely crucial. We will see the timeline right now is we've been given a date of April 27th. That is when the appeal verdict will be read out. We are still hoping and very hopeful that that appeal will overturn the conviction that took place in October of 2020 and that this matter we put aside, but obviously we can't be sure of that. So, you know, there'll be, I would say, sustained diplomatic pressure in the interim and sustained media pressure and certainly sustained public awareness raising of, of the issue. And it's something that I guess the government of Thailand has to consider whether it's really is worth their while to be seen globally in, in, as the economy picks up a country that relies on tourism, a country that relies on international supply chain presence. Uh, is it worth their while to imprison the leader of the Thai trade union movement? Is that such a good move diplomatically and economically? I suppose it's their decision to make, but that's where at the forefront of this now and at a crucial juncture. So we'll find out what happens in late April. Right. Now we're seeing across the region, I think, uh, particularly among the harder line authoritarian regimes, an increased use of the criminal courts to deal with matters which perhaps were should belong in a civil court. If someone's got a civil dis, uh, dispute which is civil, i.e. say a defamation, uh, a labour dispute. Yep. I've covered a few court cases uh, involving um, basically corporate land deals between yep. investors. And these are all the, the types of issues that... Uh, get handled by a civil court, but increasingly people are finding themselves charged with corruption under a criminal code. Are you seeing this as well? And given that your priorities are Thailand and Myanmar, perhaps two of the most authoritarian regimes in Southeast Asia, how do you you deal with that, with with these two governments? Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's a concern throughout the region. It's not just in Thailand or, or Burma. I mean, it's, it is, it's increasingly very effective from the perspective of people who want to crush trade unions and worker rights. It's, it's a very effective tool to use when you criminalize, criminalizing defamation, uh, mm. counting any in some context in the re- context in the region where simply uh, relaying to the public any sort of corporate malfeasance that's like demonstrably provable in any other context, but is going to impact on a, a given multinational and given factory's reputation is treated as defamation. Uh, it doesn't even meet the legal method. Me- so forget about criminalizing defamation. It doesn't actually even meet the test of defamation. And then that defamation is criminalized. So there's no question all of this, whether it's the use of slop legislation, defamation, criminalizing basic trade union contact, co- conduct, not only is not positive, and that's putting it on an understatement, but, but has a huge potential freezing effect. And I think the human rights community raises this repeatedly. It's expected to raise this repeatedly. But it's important not just for the diplomatic community in addition to raise it, but, but for the, the international business community to raise it as well and how comfortable do they feel. They have enormous leverage, uh, both in countries like Thailand and Burma. And so they can use that leverage for good and they can use it for ill. And so in too many of the, in too many of the sectors, uh, I'll, think I'll point to the garment sector as example number one in this, a lot of the attraction for multinational brand investment is not to provide people with jobs, it, it's to say where are jurisdictions where the rule of law is very weak and where people are so poor that they will, we can basically uh, put in a system where they will work under any conditions. And those two characteristics tend to attract the garment sector and many other sectors. And so that's not, I don't think, I mean, it may be a cynical view, but it's also one based on six yeah. years of, of 
working in, the, in these areas. And so what multinational and certainly multinational brands could do is use the power and the leverage they have throughout the region, not just in Thailand and, and Burma, but to, to sort of demand of governments that uh, demonstrably human rights conditions, and particularly human rights conditions that they've these governments have at least on paper committed to are upheld and they have enormous leverage to to make that happen uh, but to do it seriously not not in the form of corporate social responsibility or, or issuing concerns but to actually mm. talk turkey and say we will only invest in your countries and right. provide hundreds and hundreds of thousands of millions of jobs in some cases it's their choice to do so but i mean i'm i'm, I'm not naive about it and I, i'm realistic that the primary driving force for investment is the fact that wages are are low and that there's an ability to skirt the rule of law and obligations that they don't like to face in the West. So sure, it's all about it's profit a- for profit's sake. What are the major issues uh, you're, you're confronting in Myanmar? It's well in the news these days. Uh, the carnage is across the country. I mean, obviously, that must be disrupting business and also a lot of businesses have been pulling out. What are the major issues that you're having to deal with with the junta there? Well, I mean, it's, it's to the extent you're saying businesses are pulling out, that's, that is sort of the issue that uh, that it's not for me to call for it. It's for the Burmese trade unions to call for it. And what Burmese trade unions have called for in a very unified fashion is for divestment, divestment to that businesses and multinationals use the leverage that they have to apply pressure on what's an intolerable political situation. And what we're seeing is two things. Mm. There have been a couple of high profile companies that have heated those calls, so Total and Chevron, for example, recently in the oil and gas sector, but a dominant sector is the is the garment sector, uh, where every multinational uh, garment company you can imagine virtually has a presence in Burma. And what we've seen is no major brand to date pulling out. Some of them are trying to derive public relations benefits from mm-hmm. saying they've stopped orders, but stopping orders temporarily as a wait-and-see approach is quite different from divesting from the country and it's not us calling or me calling for divestment it's it's the Burmese trade unions who are best placed to do so they're doing so not because it's an easy call uh, they know that they and their members will be the first to suffer uh, should this happen but regardless of this they feel that it's the issues of such importance and the potential use of leverage is so crucial that they're willing to it's a very brave stance that they're willing to absorb that pain to make political change that they that they desire so yeah basically I think it's another example of, of the horrendous greed of the garment sector. What they, the only thing that they have done, they have a, they have, there's a monitoring program called ACT. That is a tripartite system. Members of Bur- Burmese trade union membership, uh, of some international trade union presence, brands are involved. Uh, they suspended. Uh, ironically, they suspended operations. I guess in December. And so, but in a sense, this is putting the cart before the horse, or vice versa. Whatever, the, whatever saying I'm, I'm lurching for here. In yep. the sense that. Brands haven't pulled out, but what they have pulled out is a gesture of how seriously they take uh, the political challenges in Burma is that they pull out their monitoring. So the irony can't be overemphasized that by pulling out monitoring and maintaining a presence is not quite what Burmese Burmese unions were calling for. It's exactly the opposite of what Burmese unions are calling for. So, so that if you want an example of cynicism, that's yep. an example. Of, who are the wor- who are the worst defenders among the brands? I mean, it's not it's not a question of being reluctant to mm. to name one of them. One of them, I just think the global garment industry operates in the following fashion: basically, 15 or so major brands dominate the entire sector. The way it's set up is they could easily own the factories. They choose not to do so, and the method of subcontracting from the factories allows them to maintain the legal fiction that you know, hell, they'd like to change conditions, but they're just like they're a consumer the way we are. They have no leverage. But in fact, the opposite is the case. They maintain this legal fiction that they are 
uh, customers where in fact they set all the market trends, um, they set all the dynamics they go in factory and repeatedly push fact. I mean, I'm, I don't want to give factory owners a pass here, but they yeah. they are the, the brands of the prime drivers in making sure that factories drive down wages, drive down union rights, uh, maximize profits as much as possible. If you don't do that, you lose the brand contract. contract. So what we've seen and is what's been relayed repeatedly from Burmese unions over the period is that you know, there has been a hit in terms of garment production, but to the extent that garment factories are still operating uh, in Burma from sourcing to multinational brands, you know, this, right. as, as with any, ne- never let a political crisis go to waste. Uh, what, what's been, what we've seen is trade union rights, uh, be, trade union rights that were established in a very, very exciting period over the past decade, the Burmese trade union uh, blossoming as a very young, dynamic trade union movement are being driven down. Uh, wages are being, being driven down. Conditions are... Are horrendous, and as a result, Burmese unions are calling for divestment of brands to apply necessary political pressure to uh, to restore democracy in the country, or at least take a step to do so. Okay, two quick questions: Are there any talks at all going on between the junta in uh, Burma and the trade unions? And the second question: Are there any talks at all going on between uh, the junta and the brands? Uh, I can't really comments and i'm not i'm not hedge, i'm not dodging it I, i'm not you know nothing that we can yeah. say uh publicly in that regard at all not, i mean the, the message is really on what multinationals can do and what they've been but not only what they can do and it's it's not only for them to keep we made it easier rather burmese trade units to make it easy for them they don't even have to think about what to do they can just heed the call the unified call of what burmese unions have have said and put out there and that's the call for divestment and so that's something that that's pretty clear and so far has not been heated at all. But if we have a minute just to talk about another sure. example of yep. the garment sector's malfeasance uh, in, in Thailand, I don't want to waste this opportunity in terms of highlighting a very, very important case that's uh, increasingly becoming, I would say, the highest profile garment case currently in, in the sort of global community that deals with that. Can we talk about that for yeah, a minute? Yeah, sure. No, go ahead. Okay. There's a, a factory called Brilliant Alliance Thailand, BAT, and it's becoming and will soon become the highest profile uh, garment rights case, I think, going on globally right now. It cuts across a number of important trends and a number of important developments that consumers should know about. Um, right. The background, briefly, is just under a year ago, the factory shut down. It's not an anomaly or unusual for a factory to shut down uh, under dubious claims of bankruptcy caused by COVID. We saw it again and again and again and again, that rather than weather a storm and support workers who have driven up your profits for decades, both brands and factories in hundreds, if not thousands of cases around the global sector left workers high and dry without paying severance, without sustaining them in any way. In this case, it was very similar. So it's not an anomaly in that case. And in this case, the factory shut down. Over 1,200 workers were left completely destitute. The supply chain is, is entirely American, with three American big brands implicated. I'll name them. One is Torrid, one is Lane Bryant, the other one is the well-known Victoria's Secret. So, so far, nothing unusual. This could be a fact pattern anywhere else in the market. What's unusual are these two things. One is that because the factory is such an old factory with brand presence, particularly Victoria's Secret's relationship with the factory going back years and years, <clears throat> that workers in a sector where the lifetime of a given worker's career is basically on average six, seven years tops, the average work span in this factory is 15 years. The de- demographic, overwhelmingly, over 70% women. Um, and when the factory shut down, not a penny was paid in severance. And so because of the longevity of their career and, and the structure of the company, the, the bill 
well, and it's not just my calculation, the bill owed to workers exceeds 7 million US dollars. Not a penny of that has been paid. What makes it interesting um, in that, and this would never or be hard to imagine, frankly, in Cambodia or Bangladesh or some other markets, both the Thai government, I don't want to give them too credit, too much credit because they haven't actually acted on it, but the Thai government and judiciary and ministry have ordered the factory to pay up that $7 million. And so the, the factory is now uh, well in arrears of that court order. The factory was owned by a Hong Kong group called the Clover Group. So you have the Clover Group implicated. You also have three major brands implicated. And so increasingly, this will be a test for the garment sector. It's one thing for the global garment sector to ignore claims of workers and hope that it goes away or hope that groups like ourselves or international trade unions or domestic trade unions sort of drop the case or get exhausted and uh, after chasing them in case after case after case. That's one thing. But then to ignore, to actually be ordered, which they're not used to, to be ordered by a court domestically to pay up and then to ignore that is something quite different. So this, right. could, this is an interesting angle for consumers. Um, the case on February 14th, there was a regional day of solidarity and a lot of press uh, featuring mainly, mainly again, Victoria's Secret, featuring a lot of domestic press, a lot of regional press on that, a day of action. That is just the start. A number of international groups are engaged in this and more are to come. This is becoming the, in addition to the SRUT trial that I spoke about earlier, this is becoming the case in Thailand. And it's a real test for the global garment sector and also arguably a test for consumers. So Thai workers are owed $7 million. That's based on Thai domestic law. That's that's a figure that was agreed upon by and confirmed by the Thai courts, mm -hmm. um, not pulled out of thin air. And so far, nothing has been paid. So we shall see. It's not something that, that a case is going to be dropped. It's only going to pick up in momentum. And so we will see how the brands respond. But uh, but again, it's an example of the absolute cynicism, absolute greed, and absolute disrespect for the rule of law in any context that highlights uh, major garment brands and the, and the sector writ large. Right. Given that you've had Oh, more than 16 years in the region. Yeah. And we have witnessed this sort of like broad deterioration in human rights, particularly in mainland Southeast Asia. Is it likely to improve? It has COVID, I, yeah, has COVID sure. really been used as an excuse by manufacturers to cut back, cut down? Uh, governments have been accused of using COVID as an excuse to uh, initiate crackdowns in areas it doesn't like, and that includes, I mean, here we've got uh, striking casino workers at uh, Naga yeah. World in Cambodia, and uh, they've been the government here has been accused of uh, using COVID to try and end the strike, which has so far been unsuccessful. Are you seeing this right across the board, or is it kind of restricted to uh, mainland Southeast Asia? Well, I mean, I think it's, I, I, I think, I, I take a sort of hopeful approach and, and we deal with unions in every sector and it's not just Southeast Asia. What we're seeing in the West is a real resurgence moment as well for trade unions. And I think it's directly related to COVID. No question that COVID was used as an excuse by international supply chains, domestic actors, international multinational companies, governments, et cetera, to try to drive down wages, to try to try drive drive down established trade union rights, et cetera, et cetera. But I think the flip side of that, uh, and the message that we would send is that when the worst case scenario and or hits and, and COVID for vulnerable workers was really the worst case scenario, any illusion that you might have that your employer uh, or international company that claims to really care about worker rights and corporate social responsibility has your back was clearly 
proven to be not the case across the board systematically and that the only organizations of really institutions that are able to represent you to fight back are in fact trade unions and so you know do not put your stock and faith in corporations or necessarily other actors that aren't unions and so we're seeing a resurgence of pushback. I, I, I would say the strikes that you're referring to, mm-hmm. uh, massive organi- organizing drives in the West, whether it's the US, the UK, uh, Canada, but also importantly, the strength with which the trade union movement in Southeast Asia is responding to it. Uh, growth in numbers across the region as well yeah. is actually very, very hopeful. And so there's an opportunity, an historic opportunity in many, many ways as economies bounce back, unions right. develop uh, a real sense of the leverage they have and the importance. Um, it's a workers' market at present. Across the, that isn't restricted to the West. It's, it's it's something that's universal. And so we hope and we expect, and we'll definitely support unions to maximize that leverage uh, and to and to grow in in terms of demographics, to grow in strength as well. We see increasingly labor law reforms taking place across the region with unions not just being given but taking a seat at the table. We see interesting informalized sectors, and I'll highlight platform delivery drivers who, for example, who are a lifeline to many countries across the region, maintaining maintaining basically that the population got fed during the worst of COVID. They now, what are the, what are the repercussions of that? They now have found the strength and leverage they have, and we see nascent labor organizations and unions being developed in the informal sector uh, with you know, what have you, uh, grab drivers, yep. name your company. And that that is something that is ballooning. Are we um, seeing, um, right, uh, I noticed, that, okay, Naga World Casino is owned by a Malaysian businessman. He's, uh, according to Forbes, he's worth about $6 billion. And the yep. Malaysian unions have come out in support of the Cambodian unions who are yep. on strike here. Are we seeing more of this? across the region where like-minded unions are starting to back each other a lot more? Uh, I think it was always the case, and I, but I also think they're becoming much more sophisticated in use of social media and right. just leveraging the connectivity uh, and the fact that the supply chains are essentially the same and dominated by the same actors with the same bad practices. So it's not just the Malaysian union support for the Naga strike, it's, it's the regional day of action uh, against Victoria's Secret highlighting in, on February 14th, highlighting the Brilliant Alliance Thailand case. Mm-hmm. Uh, to support Thai unions here. So there'll be a lot more of it going ahead and regional approaches to things like platform driver organizing, leverage, legal reforms. Uh, you'll be seeing a lot more and more of that. And, and it's ex- it's exciting. So I guess to get back to your, your initial question in this segment, yep. um, yeah, there's an assault on trade union and worker rights. There always is. But what's interesting and what's hopeful and what's very exciting is that we're seeing, I would say, historic pushback, historic sense of solidarity and historic realization that you know, no other institution other than our own labor rights organizations and worker rights organizations, trade unions, namely, are going to, to have our back and that the worst case scenario can happen and we better be ready for it. And, we're, you know, you're ready for it, not by not by necessarily adhering to putting faith in your country's, uh, your company's stated uh, corporate accountability obligations, but in fact, um, your, your trade union rights and the, and the trade union that, you're, you're, that, you, that you form. And so, um, you know, this, this is an exciting time. And on that note, David Welsh, thanks very much for the chat. Okay. Thanks, Luke. Awesome. All right, David.